Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. You can hear the Katie Helper Show on iTunes where you can rate and review it. And I really hope that you will. You can also find it on SoundCloud and you can find bonus episodes on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. This week's Patreon only interview will be with Shuja Hader. Very exciting. He's going to talk about how Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg violate the Marxist traditions of their fathers, and also the difference between Warren and Sanders, which has become a real theme of my show. Make sure you check out my new podcast with Matt Taibbi, which is called Useful Idiots. But before we do anything, I'm bringing you a very important medical update from Dr. Victoria Dooley to calm your minds and ease your hearts. Hello, this is Dr. Victoria Dooley, your favorite Bernie 2020 physician national surrogate here to remind you that our future president standards is going to be even better than before. The stents that were placed are a very common procedure. I've had several patients who have had stents placed sometime in their life and they've gone on to live 20, 30, 40, 50 plus more years after the procedure. And you have to remember with our future president standards, he is someone that is extremely active. Um, at his age, to be as active as he is, um, that is just reassuring that he has a very long life ahead of him compared to somebody who sits on the couch all day long. He is the energizer Bernie. I couldn't keep up with him. So the fact that he needed some sense means that his heart is going to be better than it was before. He was able to campaign vigorously with having some blockage in his heart. Now that it's unblocked, he is going to be back and better than you would ever believe. Thank you. Okay, now we can go on with the show. Without any further ado, here is Christian Parenti. Very excited to be talking to Christian Parenti. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you very much for having me on. You're welcome. Christian is Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College, City University of New York. His most recent book is Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. His forthcoming book is Radical Hamilton, How State Power Industrialized America. When's it coming out? Um, in the summer of 2020 from awesome. Burson. Great. I've been wanting to have you on for a while, if I'm being honest. But uh, I thought this was a great opportunity because you have a very interesting piece at Jacobin called Saving the Planet Without Self-Loathing. So before we get into the piece, what made you write this in the first place? It seems like you're responding to something. Um, well, uh, I mean, kind of a pervasive Malthusianism was one thing I was responding to, but there's like a commonsensical uh, pessimism among environmentalists to some extent. And, um, and also, I think, you know, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that human beings are pretty destructive, right? And it's in some ways... Look at the, the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the easier case to make is that, you know, people are just bad and destructive. And the harder case to make that I think is actually uh, true and more valuable is that human beings have, have been destructive, but we have also been uh, environmentally creative and life creating in our history and that we we really have to own that possibility in ourselves and be aware of that because the task before us is really enormous and if we try and shoulder the burden of transforming all of society and thereby transforming how we relate to the environment um, 
we can't do that feeling like that we're that we're bad. That the truth of the truth of the matter is that we're just parasites on on planet Earth, and you know. So that's what I was reacting to. A kind of like an inchoate sense that's around. Not so much arguments, though. There are there's literatures of all you know in all these veins that one could respond to. But I mean, it was it's an article in Jacobin. It's more like uh, for a mass audience in that regard. Right. I'm not, I'm not trying to get into various kinds of like literary, literary, literary niche debates, of which there are many, and I kind of like reference in the subtext, but I actually kind of think some of that stuff is an escape. My dear colleagues and, and, and people who I really respect uh, on the left, in many cases, I think there's a way in which in, Marxist environmentalists can get a little too into the minutia, and it's like there's a big, broad task before us, which is like survival. Right. And we need to, like, have as part of that task some self-appreciation as a species and um, shake off this kind of Protestant, self-hating, anti-fun negative kind of vibe, you know? Right. So radical self-care, radical self-love, self-appreciation. A more butch take on, like, the environment and the species. It's just, yeah, like, of course, yeah. precious about everything and not being so, like, self-hating and apologetic. It's like, just, you know, like... Uh, we have got to like shoulder the responsibility of being an environment making species. That's essentially right. you know, what I'm arguing for. And I, yeah. I, I see, I see people getting paralyzed before getting to that, the essence of that task and drawing some sustenance and, and uh, you know, inspiration from it. Right. So you open your piece, you say, what is the fundamental relationship between homo sapiens, which we don't really use that term anymore, Christian, anyway, between homo sapiens and environment. Western environmentalism has long suffered from an implicit Malthusianism that casts humans as intruders upon an, a harmonious and static thing called nature. This worldview has driven much of conservationism. It is at the heart of the concern with, quote-unquote, overpopulation. It lurks within the common left anxiety about, quote-unquote, development and, quote-unquote, growth. And it is found in the jobs versus environment debate. The truth is, we are not intruders. In reality, humans have always been an environment-making species. In fact, every species is. So, yeah. So, first of all, can you define um, Malthusianism? This was the guy, and he was, you know, his argument was that um, human beings reproduce faster than the rate of economic growth or, and agricultural output in particular, and that, therefore, we could never, you know, we would always overpopulate. And it was a right-wing argument to justify the status quo in early capitalist Britain. And it permeates the, you know, much of the environmental movement as a kind of, uh, just a sort of pessimism about human beings, that underneath all of the specifics, the implication of the punchline is always like, well, people are just bad. And, right. this. and, what, and what the Malthusian broadly defined, what the Malthusian sensibility avoids is capitalist social relations, right? So it's like, nah, you know, uh, in Easter Island, they went extinct because the humans went extinct because they just overconsumed. And right. it's a consumption-based view of the human being's relationship to the environment, that all we do is consume the environment rather than also produce right. that process of production and of consumption. And Poverty shaming too, right? What? There's some some good old-fashioned poverty shaming built into it. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. 
This is just kind of a react. I mean, a lot of you know, a lot of American environmentalism is really quite reactionary in many ways. I mean, not currently, but like there's like there's some deep sort of um, reactionary elements in in uh, the kind of the history of American environmentalism. Conservationism being linked to white supremacy, being linked right. to eugenics. There's like the dark side of, of progressivism at the turn of the you know nineteenth to twentieth century, um, and some of that baggage still lurks with us but you know that's not really like what i was trying to get at with this i mean there are people who get into that intellectual history and i kind of wanted to just like speak to people about their role as a species you know just like remember this like this is what politics is it's like we're trying to make a home you know we're trying to reproduce this home we have on this planet rather than destroy it and ourselves and the whole thing in the process and um and trying to shake people out of a sort of complacent pessimism. Right, you know? and paralysis. Yeah. Cynicism, I think one of the, one of the major th problems the environmental movement faces is, or environmental politics, maybe not the movement, but it, is uh, cynicism, you know? And that people are too comfortable in their cynicism and, and uh, that people need to be given credible reasons to care and to try to deal with environmental problems. And if it's if everything is is always framed in uh, you know terms of a kind of secular sin, you're bad. Right. You must remediate your sin, and you must atone uh, and and pay recompense for your sins. It's like that's a serious downer. I mean, who yeah. who wants to do that? I don't want. Yeah, it's not very good for organizing either, right? Right, it's awful. Yeah, um, so, yeah. There's been human beings that have have. have have done a lot of damage to the environment, but a lot of that has been, not all, but it would not reduce the environmental crisis to capitalism. Um, other, other previous cap, you know, uh, pre-capitalist societies also sometimes had environmental problems, but the vast majority of the problem is rooted in capitalist social relations. Um, that said, you know, Marx is very clear about uh, the fact that, that sustainability is its own thing that socialism doesn't automatically produce sustainability, that like there has to be a specific like intention to plan for sustainability. There's nothing about egalitarian economic social relations that produces sustainable ecological relations. Right. So you're saying he didn't have like a utopian rosy colored view of the way that. Well, right. You know, but I mean, and the things I thought, I'm not sure a lot of people know this. Because a lot of a lot of environmentalists go around, a lot of kind of like red, you know, Marxist environmentalists sort of suggest that sustainability automatically flows from socialist social relations. And I think there's two reasons why people fall into that. One is because there's such a deep tradition of anti-communism in the United States that it permeates much of the left. And and uh, essentially what that has done is it's cut us off from analyzing in any serious way the history of what was once called actually existing socialism. That, you know, I know you think about this and have thought about this. And so people don't look at the problems in the Soviet Union. They don't look at the successes in the Soviet Union. They just don't look at it. Just condemn uh, it. Then you, right. you're free to be like, well, no, when we do socialism. Right, I see, right. So then, it's like ahistorical. Totally ahistorical. And uh, they, people don't want to look at, like, the problems and successes in Venezuela or Bolivia. And it's like, if you start looking at that, one thing you see is that it's not so easy to just break away from 
fossil fuel technology. And it's not synonymous with capital social relations. It's not as simple as you change ownership structures and then suddenly there's somehow a new set of motivations that shifts everything to solar panels. Not at all. And, and so most environmentalists fall, I think, into a pattern of kind of like invoking, you know, this better set of social relations, which will then somehow produce a more sustainable relationship to the ecology. But no, actually, sustainability is its own thing that has to be worked on immediately to help, you know, produce socialist changes. And even if you had a socialist political economy, whatever specifically that might be, it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to shut down all the coal mines and all right. the Eric's yeah, so. it's, it's funny. You just reminded me the way you're talking about it reminds me of what people say about identity politics. You know, people will say, well, you know, is, is, is socialism or economic equality going to end racism? And no, no one's saying that, first of all. But that's almost what you're saying about sustainability, right? Like it's not going to just right. automatically lead to these things. Right. Um, and we also do believe that with race as, and gender as, stuff. As with, as with like, uh, you know, Will socialism and racism? Right. No, no, not automatically, but it make it a lot easier. Yeah, though. exactly. Right. So, will so so you could say, will socialism create sustainability? No, but will automatically, right? But right. will capitalism ever? No, right? Is that like the way it is? It's kind of I, like there's I mean, a chance under socialism. I mean, I think that fundamentally, capitalism in the long term, it cannot be sustainable. You can't have right. a system that's predicated on endless growth operate on. A finite planet. However, capitalism can be made more sustainable. Right. It's not like the struggle for sustainability is somehow completely uh, un unaccessible under capitalist social relations. It, it's actually very important the kind of technological legacy that capitalism would leave to socialism if that were to ever happen. Right. Um, so, in that, in those terms, like a kind of reformist politics of socialism uh, of uh, uh, sustainability along with a kind of reformist politics of social struggle is absolutely essential because, uh, you know, it is, even if the, the, the ownership structures of society change and there's some sort of state and collective ownership and there's more democratic forms of ownership, I mean, we're going to inherit all of this built infrastructure, right? All of these fuel sources and transportation systems. So it's imperative now to try and make as sustainable as possible capitalism's um, system of production and mm. consumption, et cetera, et cetera, be, you know, because uh, that's a big part of what socialism has to deal with. I mean, you see examples of this. It's like a lot of people um, diss Bolivia for not being right. enough. And um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of too much of a new dealer uh, to, to go there. I, mean, I think it's a lot harder run a landlocked, totally impoverished country than it looks. Right. So Chris Madar once said, he was like, yes, Ava Morales has a lot of problems that your average assistant professor doesn't have to face. Who said that? Chase Madar. Yeah, yeah, that's a good line, yeah, yeah. Bolivia has done, there's a lot of problems in Bolivia. Bolivia's done a lot of amazing stuff in terms of poverty reduction, but like they have not been able to get off of selling gas to Brazil. You know, right. I'm kind of addiction there. And I think it's too fast to be like, well, they're just not trying hard. They're just not left wing enough. And it's like, right. yeah, really? Like if you were in charge of like one of the poorest countries right. in the hemisphere with like lots and lots of poor people who don't have running water in villages, your first priority would be to shut off the government's right. form of money? Really? I just don't buy it, you know? Yeah.
So we're hostage to technology. That's why reformist struggles about around making capitalism in the short term more sustainable are, are important as a socialist and as part of a socialist long-term strategy. You're, you're saying that we shouldn't dismiss, right, the reformist efforts that are happening now under capitalism. Well, specifically, I mean, I'm not saying like all reformist efforts are equal, no, but like um, that, you know, to the extent that there are laws that encourage utilities to build out renewable energy capacity and shut down fossil fuel capacity, that's great. Right. A certain type of leftist would be like, it's not good enough. I mean, it's like, you know, people right. like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The Green New Deal is going to have an energy footprint. Like, right. hmm, what about that? And it's like, get real. Come on. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, all reformers. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I mean, I think divestment is, is ridiculous. You know, I laid off the divestment movement for a while just to be a team player, but it's like, you know, I keep hearing this kind of silliness going on. Why is it? Why is it so useless? Because selling, selling your ownership share in a fossil fuel company, when that fossil fuel company in frequent cases is buying back shares, doesn't hurt the fossil fuel industry. Right. And the fossil fuel industry is not in the business of selling shares, like ownership shares and stuff. It's in the business of producing energy from coal and oil and gas. And uh, there's a kind of religious um, fantasy politics, kind of secularized religious fantasy politics of purity and abstinence yeah. right. and of moral shaming. And, you know, yeah. when the champions of uh, divestment are asked to explain what it does, it's like it removes the, um, the moral license. Stain. Yeah, right. It's yeah. Like, but what about, like, the actual license? What about right. organizing movements to pressure government not the right. board of trustees of a university to sell the shit that they own, right? But like, you know, and, and then switch it into some other form of equity that is basically just collecting surplus value off of other people's labor, right? It's like, no, why not right. just channel your effort to pressure government to say to industry, like, yeah, no, here you may not drill any more fossil fuels. You can't use public lands. Right. Uh, can't drill off, you know, offshore. Like, no, you can't build any more refineries, uh, you know. The right. taxes, all your tax subsidies are gone. Now your taxes are going up. You want to save your fortunes, you have to build out this renewable energy. Otherwise, we're coming to take your money. Right. We're coming to get you. Much more effective. Yeah. It's kind of like divestment is like the uh, paper uh, paper straws. Yes. It's like paper straws, but it's also worse because it it uh, it inculcates in young activists the, the sensibility of being a fund manager because the uh -huh. question is sort of like, oh, well, what right. should we invest in? And the correct answer is, you know, fuck you, you know, right. uh, spend, spend your endowments right now. The world is basically on the verge of ending, liquidate it, you know, get real. Uh, yep. Don't ask us who you should exploit next, right? But instead, students are like, okay, well, we have to be responsible. Like, how the school needs the income from the endowment, and that's why it was given. And so, he's, what should we invest in? It's like, that's not where political activists, left-wing political activists, should be headed intellectually when they're 19 and 20, right? So that's what another problem with, with uh, divestment is that it's like, it, it wraps students up in this, like, you know, little game of being responsible and thinking about how right. to Having a plan for things? Yeah. So ownership what key source of ownership is the kind of agency that matters. You know, that's right. the unfortunate punchline that could come out of this potentially. So what is to be done? And tell me your thoughts about Greta Thunberg 
and um, Bernie and uh, Warren? Well, I think that uh, Bernie is great. I'm from Vermont. I love Bernie. I think that stents are like, everybody gets stents, you know what I mean? Stents are like the new, I don't know what, what's something cool? Stents are like the new, what's something cool? I can't even think of it. Air, Air Jordans from the 90s. Yeah, stents are all the rage. Anyone who's anyone has them. Yeah. Um, so I love Bernie, and uh, I mean, I think what he's done is really amazing, you know, in terms of uh, educating the American people and pushing the pushing politics left. And, you know, Greta Thunberg, it's like, I mean, I understand there's a lot of people who kind of like get little like heebie-jeebies from the sort of um, uh, cult of personality. But, yeah. you know, I think uh, Greta is, Greta is all right. I mean, Greta is, I don't think we would have had 250,000 people out in the streets right. if Greta weren't this like, you know, media icon. Uh, we need to get beyond a politics that's kind of like media fixated and we got to like, be much more organized than that. But given that we're not there yet, right. but, you know, having a kind of green Joan of Arc to right. motivate the youth is amazing. March, it was incredible. I mean, it's like all those kids out there. I mean, in some ways, that's what inspired me to write that piece. Huh. And Jacqueline was like, you know, a little something like, not like keep hope alive. That's just like nonsense, like rah-rah, but like a serious case to be made for why we're not, a, why we're not evil as a species. Why right. we deserve to be wiped out as a species, you know? Yeah. And why we deserve to try and get through this and embrace all of our powers. Mm. Including Asperger's, which she talks about like a power. Have you heard her talk about it? No, I haven't. It's kind of cool. She's like, because of my diagnosis, she, I, I heard her speak and she was saying that like people on the spectrum, she thinks that like people with Asperger's there's no like affect or fakeness. She, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, if you're upset about something and you have Asperger's, like you're upset because you're really upset about it. Like you're not. There's no social capital in like trying to show off and pretend you're upset about it. So anyone who's upset, who sees it and has Asperger's, it's like totally legit, and she doesn't get the gap between like realizing the the urgency of it and not acting like it. I wonder if that's true. I don't, I don't know, know if it's true, but um, I mean, I, I think I get it kind of if you look at it backwards, because there is luckily in some ways it's good. There's like a coolness factor with caring about the end of the world as there should be. But then I think if you kind of don't have that coolness factor functioning as much, you're not going to be like half assed about it or pretending. I'm sure I offended a lot of like people with Asperger's who say that there's a, a rich strain of uh, cool coolness factor but um anyway yes yeah, she's she says i don't know if this is true but she says that there there's like a higher rate of people on the spectrum in with neurodiversity that's the word neurodiversity in the climate movement anyway I mean, the, the limits of greta are that she doesn't talk about capitals but i mean she's only 16 and yeah. you know she's from uh, kind of whatever i don't i don't i yeah. looked into greta that much but it's like yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd and, like her you'd like her to move beyond this kind of like emotive personalistic scolding and be like well, you know yeah there's a lot of scolding but it's it's okay because she's like a little kid so it's kind of funny right right in terms of yeah. warren um you know i i do not uh i do not trust warren i think that warren has um you know recently you know it's been better but like you know her the long scope of her track record it's like i don't really trust her it's like she was republican until 1996 she teaches contract law. She says she loves capitalism. She's obsessed with contracts. 
and also, um, uh, you know, she's got she's got other problems. I prefer Bernie by a long shot. I think Elizabeth Warren would be like Obama. You know, that it right. would, would not be a change candidate. At all. Do you ever worry that Bernie will be? <laughs> I have this internal dialogue where I'm like, wait a second. I'm pretty sure Bernie likes Warren, and we know he does because he wanted her to run in 2016, which is why whenever people are like, he's such an egomaniac, I'm like, I mean, the guy literally ran for president in 2016 after he asked Warren to do it, and she said no. And I, I, he's probably like, all right, I got to get into this or whatever. Well, so, I, I mean, I think, I think, frankly, that kind of stuff is sort of irrelevant. No offense, but I mean, it's like, I mean, whatever, who cares if he likes you? It's like, who's, who do you trust to fight? I mean, who do you really think is going to go, if they got power, go no, up I, right. stories? Bernie, she's not going to do that, right? Right, she's but I trust person. Bernie, which is why I'm kind of like trusting him to, I mean, I obviously, I think there's a big difference, but I'm just being honest. I'm not defending it. I'm just being honest. But I have this like inner voice that's like, Bernie's like, don't do that, Katie. Like, don't. Don't throw Elizabeth under the bus. Look, is she as good as we, as we need to be? No, but is she a lot better than, uh, you know, other ones? Yeah. And so I don't, I mean, not that, like, I talk about the Messiah complex. People are going to make fun of me so hard about, like, literally having a, a Bernie in my brain. I hear him like other people hear God. Um, and I'm being somewhat facetious, but I am a little bit conflicted about it because I think there's a huge difference between the two of them. Then I think there's, like, a significant difference between her and everyone else. But yeah. No, she's 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 much better than everybody else. I will vote for her, and I will you know do everything I can to get to vote out for her. And I if will she, if Bernie her. doesn't win. Yeah, I, mean, I, like just don't, I think she's going to. I mean, look, she took big donor money all through 2018. Then she swears it off. This was in the Times, right? Yeah. Swears it off. Now she's like known for like taking only small donors. It's like, I mean, that's that's hypocritical. The yeah. Times itself has run these articles about. It. She's like. You know, explaining to the DNCs, she's not gonna start her own organization. She'll share all her data. She's giving every indication that she's part of the establishment. They're going to smash her in the face with this. Yeah, if she gets the nomination and is not dealt with beforehand. Right. I mean, honestly, what I think is, I think Elizabeth Warren needs to, to deal with this now. She probably right, so we're helping her in a way, not even being sarcastic. And also, Trump, like people don't get this. Sometimes they're like. How could Trump go after her for that when he breaks the law left and right or he's he's locking up children? It's like he doesn't play by those rules. He's not vulnerable to that stuff the way every single other person is, except for himself, basically. Um, it's great. Which, this, is, this is great danger and his great genius, right? Right. That, I mean, the, the liberals have been thinking that somehow he'll be brought to heel. No. Like the rules by decor right. or even by the law. And it's like, no. unfortunately, in, in this... Uh, impeachment thing, um, it seems like, you know, this the Senate is definitely not going to. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you know, what, four, 14 Republicans side with all the Democrats, and you probably won't even have all the Democrats voting to impeach, to convict on an impeachment. If right. It made it there. And so what's going on at a certain level in this struggle is the, 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 the rule of law, the forces of the rule of law desperately attempting to reassert the rule of law, which I totally respect and part right. of it is like even though i'm kind of like <clears throat> you know hey this is probably like a red herring it's just like talking about trump for like however many months and like we should be running on the issues another part of me is like at a certain level like the little civic student in me is like you just gotta like throw yourself like at the at the you know the barricades or whatever it's like it, like this is outrageous he needs to be impeached even if it fails because he's such 
uh, a disgusting uh, racist and, right. and such a marauder on the uh, yeah um, <clears throat> tax front and environmentally uh, regu- regulatorily throughout the government. But you <clears throat> one one problem. <clears throat> hold on, you're getting off for clumped. Matt and I talked about this, Matt Taibbi, about how we don't think it's strategic. First of all, <clears throat> yeah. But but on the other hand, it's like you know. Uh, what if, I mean, you can imagine just sort of in, um, ra- I mean, the, 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 the counter argument <clears throat> is that you have to use power to kind of generate power and that, you know, it, that the impeachment itself can build momentum. And that's what happened with Nixon. But the right. thing is, the Republican Party seems to be totally different today compared to what it was in the early 70s. And they, they're like, um, <clears throat> I mean, they're not going to. They're not going to turn on Trump. The the RNC just pledged a, a billion dollars to reelect right. Trump. That's like a billion dollars worth of coattails. If that wasn't enough, it's like, hey, senators, do you want to ride these coattails or do you want to be a punk? Well, I think it like, says everything that Nixon said, I'm not a crook, right? That's like his, one of his famous lines. And Trump just would never say that. Like, I just think it's such a different time and it's such a different sensibility that again, it's like he he's successful because he says fuck you to all these institutions. And obviously he's a con man, right? But that's again why I don't think this stuff will work. Like I don't I think he would play the impeachment like a fiddle. Like I think if he were, if they went out, if they did that, I just think he'd be he'd he managed to dominate it. And that's like a different, you know, the other discussion is like what's the you know, he does worse things. But forgetting that, because I understand you go to impeachment with the evidence you have, I get that. I just don't think it's going to, I just think it's going to be a um, media they'll, spectacle. They'll fire back with, as they already are, with all the stuff about the Bidens, which, right. which isn't made up, unlike Russia, isn't like, you know. I know, I know. I love that he, Biden like. I, crack, Hunter Biden is a crackhead who right. ran through the family's money, knowing nothing, is thrown out of the Navy. For, for cocaine. Abuse, right. And hired for no apparent reason other than the fact that he's related to the vice president of the United right. States who's the president's point man on Ukraine, hired by the largest energy right. company. I mean, it's outrageous. I was joking so, with Matt Taibbi on my other podcast. I was like, I'm actually kind of surprised he got caught at all. Like he got busted, um, Hunter Biden. And then I was like, maybe that is really Joe being like the middle class scrappy Joe, like school of hard knocks. And like, this is the corrupt Democrat equivalent of like letting your kid face the music and face consequences. It's like he gets a job in Ukraine as opposed to going to jail. But like anyone else, you know, he would just like have it covered up. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, who knows? Um, and he's, he's a man, as, as a friend of mine in Europe pointed out, he was like, he was like, yeah, man, if you if you got a job uh, at a Ukrainian energy company, it's like, wouldn't um, you know, booking multiple hotel rooms a night with like doing tons of cocaine, like, wouldn't that be kind of like the um, yeah, that they were looking for essentially. Right. right. Yeah. And let's see, anything else um about your what you're working on, the article, environmentalism. I mean, I think people used to think that Marxism and like environmentalism were somewhat I mean, not people who read Marx, but I guess people would on the left would dismiss this. It's not been that way for a while. But have did you witness that change like throughout your lifetime? I feel like it was dismissed as like just caring about the environment used to be more dismissed as a bougie white concern. 
Um, yeah, I've seen that definitely. I think that's diminishing because of the because climate change is becoming such a real problem. I mean, another thing about the article and answer your question is like uh, it was a nice opportunity to give old Fred Engel some props. You know, yeah, I've been um, always living in Carl's shadow. The other, the other guy. The sugar daddy too. He didn't mind that. I mean, that was not a problem for him. He was that like, was their that was their uh, dynamic. He was the sub. Angles was no, he wasn't a sub. Angles was like you know, um, he was just very different, right? I mean, Angles was this sort of like adventurer. He was very into history. He didn't have the kind of abstract uh, powers that that Mark Michiga- had. Michigas, yeah. That yeah. He wasn't and, a member of the tribe. And he was, um, you know, he saw Marx's genius and he wanted to support him, right? And he did a good job, such as it was when he wasn't spending money on race horses and country club um, fees. But um, no, I mean, Frederick Engels also gets a bad rap, I think, because he was associated with the Soviet Union, because the Soviet kind of science establishment tried to sort of make more of him maybe than should have been. But he was really quite prescient and, and for an amateur, you know, who had to spend a lot of his time running a mill, like he was very smart and, and kind of ahead of his time. And I think um, that he has been neglected for those reasons. And so part of what's going on in the subtext of that article is like, you know, the points he made about fire. So Marx notes that, you know, taking off on this theme about uh, human beings being an an environment-making species, because all species are environment-making species. The environment is really just the interaction of every organism with this environment. Every organism is part of every other organism's environment and, and vice versa. And Every organism has an effect on its environment that helps produce that environment. And our, what makes us different is that we can be conscious of this to some extent. We produce environments unconsciously and also consciously. And Marx <clears throat> notes that human labor is part of this environmental drama. That it is how the species regulates its relationship with the rest of the environment and therefore is a crucial part of the metabolism of the whole environment. And then Engels takes that 10 years later, kind of takes that a little further and even argues that like, no, human beings are actually kind of the product of their own labor evolutionarily through fire and the use of tools. Like, so through fire, like by cooking food, we can shorten the digestive tract, right. you know, we like physically change with this. Right. So, um, Ad- you know, adapt. Points. And these are, these are points that are later picked up by science, but these are ideas that are picked up you know, more recently by science, but never with any attribution to angles, never a nod to angles. So that was one thing I had fun doing in that relationship. I mean, that, that article. Um, in your relationship with angles? Relationship with Fred. With Fred. You have, I have Bernie in my head and my heart and you have Fred. You carry Fred around. That yeah. would be really funny if like you, that was your major cause in life. You went around like interrupting conferences and you're like, you didn't even mention Fred. What about Fred? Yeah, Mark, was, Carl is nobody without him. We started a Brooklyn Angles reading group. Really? Yeah. We, we, uh, you, sh- you should come on in. Yeah. 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 It's giving giving old old Frederick Engels some some props. I thought it was important, and partly because the, the, I presented an academic paper at some little conference, and and somebody who's already left was like, "Oh, I I commend you for the your chutzpah of quoting Engels." And it's just like, "Oh man, are we still? It's like, is this like the like early nineteen eighties? Like." It's, was that ever a thing? I didn't know that was like verboten. Thank you, because the Soviets sort of latched on to angles, so then he got kind of like thrown out in the. Oh, anti- I, that's what he meant. The hooks, but yeah. Oh, he's. But why wasn't Karl Marx as tainted? Um, 
probably because his profile was higher, but he was also, you know, tainted that way. Yeah. But more, but but the kind of like the the anti-communist, anti-Marxist thing went a little deeper with angles, so you could find more professors who would be post post-structuralist professors who'd be like, Marx had a lot to say, and it was like the height of Western metaphysics, and had oh, the. I see. So they were like, at least Marx was balanced out. Just a lot of Marxists like that. Like, oh, Engels is very undialectic. It's like, yeah, it's not like I'm not saying that like um, Engels was the be all end all of environmental thinking, but like there are these really interesting little nuggets in there that like only a hundred years later do people build whole careers on basically elaborating these points without ever crediting Engels. So you're saying that like so there are people who anti-communists who re- realize they have to pay their due or tip their hat to Marx even if they think that he's associated with the Soviet Union, but Engels is like, because he didn't make that much of a, an influence, he's just tainted by that, per, and it's not balanced out by other achievements? Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that Engels was easier, easier to throw out. I mean, it's just, you know. Right. They, because, I mean, yeah. it's a, a certain kind of liberal ac- academic who can't get away with just dismissing Marx as a I see, right, 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 right. So, yeah. There are certain circles where either even, there are even conservatives who would, like, recognize the dismissal of Marx as a sign of, of, of like, yeah, of intellectual limits. Right. Yeah, I get it. I see what you're saying. So you're, yes, it's, it's the Nazi, which is why you are rehabilitating his legacy. I see. Um, I mean, it's why I gave him some props in a lot of Yeah. Years. I think it's Tristan Hunt uh, who wrote Marx's General. He's real. Wow. Right. And, and Christian also has, you guys haven't seen this, uh, he has a, a shrine an angles it's a mill it's a little mill diorama with small irish immigrants working away at the mill. yeah 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 hey have you seen have you seen young marks no i have to see it you gotta see it he didn't write about natural sciences that much um really at all i mean angles did angles wrote about natural sciences marks read soil science and john bellamy foster argues very well very convincingly in marx's ecology that even though the Marx's reading of soil science and uh, like these these clear hints of environmental thinking, even though they're peripheral in the overall amount of the of the argument, it's like they're actually central uh, to the structure of the argument because it's like this whole thing about like labor being uh, an environmental process. Essentially, it's how our species interacts with its environment. But then you yeah. see the labor process that capitalist social relations intervene in and distort. It's like, this is, if that's the center of the economic theory, but that the labor process is framed as fundamentally environmental, then you realize that the whole economic theory is really an environmental theory, right? That's, right. that's John Bellamy Foster's, one of his important contributions. It's like, so Marx, Marx was like, it was ever present, but he doesn't actually write about it that much. Okay. That was Envi- environmental science and like an, you know the environmental the question of environmental metabolism and our place in the larger ecology is like ever present in the background of Marx essentially. You're kind of saying like um, interaction with the environment is not something to be because there is this puritanical human shaming right where it's like nature is you know it's this like fetishization of of the land and nature as if like humans are intruding on it, as you said, and weren't supposed to be there. But as you said, like, it's not human interaction or activity per se that's so anti-natural. There's a very specific, like, It's the sub. time, it's like, it's yeah. the time thing to do. So, I mean, like, yeah, I'm mean, going to use the example of 
how Native American burning. It was all like romantic racism about Native Americans that they treaded lightly on the planet. It's like, no, right. they're right. actually very robust environment makers. Like uh, peak bison populations <clears throat> were the result of Native American burning and land management. And, you know, I mean, there's a way in which Native Americans, through their very robust environment, making increased life. And what changes that and, and causes its destruction is the introduction of capitalist social relations. Not just, you know, white supremacy and colonialism, because actually the key mechanism in, in destroying the Plains Indians around Buffalo was when capitalists, inventors in Philadelphia in 1870 learned how to turn buffalo hide, which is like so thick that when it dried, it's like brittle wood. It's just impossible to use. Um, not like wood and brittle, but like too, too, too stiff to use. They figure out how to tan it so that it can become industrial belts because before electrification, right, energy was moved through these transmission belts, essentially. So they used lots and lots of leather belts in factories to throw energy to the workstations. And once they figured out how to use bison hide and not just, you know, um, bovine hide, cattle hide, uh, then there was this massive commercial hunting. And the U.S. military cooperated and supported that hunting effort so as to starve the Plains Indians, who they were trying to force into submission and force onto the reservations. Um, so those are two examples of, of, you know, one of life producing and one of totally apocalyptic forms of human environment making. But being butch the whole time, as you said, mm -hmm. you don't have to like tiptoe around it. Like, yeah, like, you know, we can do this. It's like, you know, it's not always about like begging apology. And right. there's examples in, of, in the present of, you know, despite all the limitations of like, fossil fuel subsidies uh, from the state and, you know, capitalist social relations, even under these conditions, there is progress. And, you know, there's a, I use the example of a fish farm in, in Spain that was a rice, it was like uh, rice fields and that that became illegal due to better environmental laws. And so they reflooded the area and becomes this estuary wetland. And right. there, I mean, the, the, it's not like a wild wetland where people go fishing. It's like, they stock it, they breed fish, they stock it, they're penned, they feed the fish, but the fish also feed off the natural environment. And there's also like tons of birds come. It's a migrating sort of way station for birds in the, in the Mediterranean. They, they, the birds take like 20% of the fish. So it's like, you know, it's not some sort of like retreating from the environment. It's not there. I mean, the owners of this fish farm are actively engaged. They feed the fish. That's the one weak link because a lot of fish feed is from other fish or from soy. Right. But you know, even there, there's room for progress. There's like uh, leaps and bounds being made with insect protein. Right, the larva. I was reading about that in your piece. The larva of like the black soldier fly. You Low know, impact. Grind them up, desiccate them, and it's just like this, like super potent protein powder that fish love. It's what it's what fish crave, actually. Um, you're you're part of the um, desiccated larva uh, lobby. That's yeah. who sponsors your work. Um, Okay, great. Have you were you there by the way? Were you in at did you go to that place in Spain or you just read about it? No, what? Okay. Sometime. Yeah. Right after you go to where's Angles buried? It's a good question. Oh I my god, I can't believe it. You're gonna never forgive yourself for not knowing that. Yeah. I don't know. And you call yourself an Angles ally. But yeah, I don't know. You're blinded by your Marx privilege, by your Marx centrism and yeah. your Engels phobia. Even someone like you. I'm using the same power inequality exactly. 
mechanics in my own mind right, right. here. Yeah, totally unaware. You can't help it. Okay, well, thank you. This is great. Thank you very much for having me on, Katie. Really. Yeah, thanks. All right, talk to you. Right. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. Don't forget to join our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova.